Well, good afternoon. Thank you for your kind gifts. I should say that um, Ian's wife, uh, Denise, was planning to be here today, but has been unwell. Come back from the Cayman Islands where it's nice and warm. First thing you do, you come back to Sheffield. What happens? You get a cold. So um, my wife, Jane, spoke to her earlier and she sounded not very well. So uh, we'll see Denise at some other point. I should say as well, isn't it great that we go to Cayman Islands with a video and they don't get the sound and then we show it here and you don't get the pictures? <laughs> Something kind of ironic about that, isn't it? We'll um, try and fix that. Well, it is really great to be here. I've been looking forward to this. We're working through uh, the New Testament book of Acts, which comes just after the Gospels. <coughs> And it is the story of the very first Christians. And we've entitled this series, Mission Unstoppable. Have we got some slides? I'm hoping we've got some slides. Mission Unstoppable. The book of Acts, as Sam alluded to earlier, is written by a man called Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And um, so, in a way, Luke and Acts are like one volume in two parts. They really go together. Luke is all about Jesus and what he did when he lived on this earth. Acts, on the other hand, is all about Jesus. But what he did on earth through his disciples after he descended back to heaven. So the two volumes really go together and they're all about what Jesus is doing either on earth or from heaven through his disciples in the early church, the first Christians. And that's one reason why we've called it Mission Unstoppable. This is not really the random mission of some people who thought it might be a good idea to do a few things. This is Mission Unstoppable because it's God's mission in his world. This is about Jesus building, shaping, nurturing his church in a world that is often hostile. And um, the, the more I'm reading this book, well, obviously to prepare to, to talk like this, we, we're reflecting during the week and reading and trying to make sense of what the Bible says so that we can uh, make a good fist of teaching it. The more I'm reading this book of Acts, the more I'm admiring Luke, the author. I love the fact, for example, that he's not dry and boring as a writer. He writes in a way that brings characters, situations to life. His writing is vibrant and exciting and, it ca and it's designed to draw us as readers into it. I also love his fair-mindedness. Remember that this is written 2,000 years ago, getting on for, and I love the fact that he, he just tells things as they are. He doesn't put like a a biased gloss on things. In, in the book of Acts and in the book of Luke, his gospel, he doesn't paint all Christians as good guys and all the people who are not Christians as the enemy. He's much more nuanced than that. This is not a propaganda piece. Last week, um, Jai was... Uh, not last week, we had a carol service last week, didn't we, in between. The week before that, Jai was talking about the previous verses here. Ananias and Sapphira, hypocrites in the church. So he doesn't, he's not afraid, he's not just giving the good bits and hiding and covering up all the bad things. 
So I love his fair-mindedness. I also love the ease with which Luke seems to be at home with people from all different levels and parts of society. He isn't a racist. He isn't prejudiced. He doesn't look down or dismiss people who are struggling or vulnerable or who are just not like him. But on the other hand, he's not one of those people who thinks that anybody in power must be corrupt and he's kind of got a militant hatred of anybody who's an authority. He, he, he's much more... The world he describes is much more nuanced and complex than that. I also love the simple, clear way that Luke just lets the facts speak for themselves and he allows his readers to draw their own conclusions. He does write with some aims... And if you check out the start of the book of Acts and the, and the start of Luke, you'll, you'll see some of the aims. He's very clear in wise writing. But then he just seems to unfold the story because he's confident that the facts that he's recording will bear serious scrutiny by a fair-minded person. So, I mean, this, this is just by way of introduction. This. I'm just excited about getting to know Luke as an author the more I've studied this book, the more thankful I am that God has given us this book in the Bible. I was in Ian and Denise's church a couple of weeks ago. And coincidentally, I didn't know this, when I was there, it was the first Sunday they were starting a new series. And do you know what book they were starting? Not the book of Acts, but the Gospel of Luke. And the pastor there, Thabiti, I can't say his second name, and he will or something, it, what is it, Ian? Anyubwili, that's it. Um, the pastor was giving an introduction to the Gospel of Luke and he made a lovely phrase. He, he said, the Gospel of Luke has the aroma of authenticity about it. I love that phrase. I don't know whether that was his phrase or he picked it from somewhere else. The aroma of authenticity. What he means by that is, when you read it, it smells truthful. Isn't that a great way to come to the Gospels and to the book of Acts? Now, we've reached chapter 5. Jai, last time, dealt with verses 1 to 11. And originally, I was hoping to cover off the rest of chapter 5, but I'm a tinker. I, I came to this, and I've actually part prepared a talk on some of the narrative in chapter 5 and then I thought there's too much here this, I'm biting off more than we can chew and I don't want to give you indigestion so then I thought I just want to take this little summary section verses 12 to 16 we're on page 1097 if you've got one of these red church Bibles it'd be really helpful if you do so you can follow um, and then I looked at this summary section and thought do you know what there's too much in this as well and there's just an idea contained in this section that I want to deal with today and then I want to talk about something else next time and then we'll do the rest of chapter 5. So we'll be about 2025 before we finish that but at least we'll be going through it thoroughly so I don't really care. Um, what, what Luke does in the book of Acts, it's, it's interesting. This, this little summary section, verses 12 to 16 of chapter 5 is the third summary section in this book that Luke writes I said Luke is a very intelligent and interesting writer 
and he very carefully develops his story. So what you get is a little bit of action and then you get a summary. And then you get another little bit of action and then you get a summary. And then you get another bit of action and a summary. And what he's doing is he's, he's developing the plot of his narrative. The first summary we've dealt with is in chapter 2. If you make your notes, verse 42 to 47. And basically there, Luke tells us what the first Christians did. Very functional. This is what they did. The second summary we dealt with is in chapter 4, and it starts in verse 32. And in that summary, Luke is, he changes it slightly, and he really talks more about what the first Christians were like. So he's told us what they did. He's told us what they're like. And this third summary has got an even different nuance to it because in this summary, it's not so much about what they did or what they were like. This summary is more about what was their impact on the society and the community around them. Do you get that pattern? So a little bit of action, what they did, a little bit of action, what they were like, a little bit of action, the impact that they had. This, this, is, a, this is a very... It's, it's a fantastic piece of uh, writing. And Luke's taken great care in giving it to us. Now, even though this little summary is um, short, it's very interesting. Uh, what, what I think we'll do then is we'll just read this, uh, these verses together and then we'll have a little bit of um, audience participation. Okay, so I want you to follow this and then we'll have a little bit of a discussion about what, what do you think the main themes are that emerge from these verses because it's only sure they're quite straightforward so let's read from verse 12 Acts chapter 5 verse 12 third summary this is about impact let's hear God's word the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade as part of the temple in Jerusalem. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Well, so reads God's word. Well, what, what is, this, so this is a little summary section. We're going to see some more action from verse 17 onwards. We'll deal with that some other time. What are the main themes that strike you? This is not like write your own sermon time, but what are the main themes that strike you in those verses as you survey them? Just shout, shout some things out. If they don't match mine, then I'll change my talk. <laughs> if they do, well, that's a challenge, isn't it? What do you think? What are the main themes? It's not a trick question. Some people didn't think they were good enough to join in. 
Very interesting. Okay. Bingo. <laughs> I noticed that as well. I'm really glad that you said that. Okay. Some people didn't think they were good enough to join in. What else? What else? Don't be shy. They were performing miracles. That's a massive theme there, isn't it? It says in verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. I think the phrase signs and wonders is the way the Old Testament talks about miracles. It's very much like a Jewish way of talking about miracles, signs and wonders. And Luke just kind of carries that over here. And it's amazing, isn't it, the way it speaks about Peter. It, it doesn't say this happened, but certainly the people thought that Peter was so powerful that if they just brought people out into the street as he was walking past and his shadow fell on them, I mean, this, this guy's held in very high regard, isn't he, Peter? Very powerful. Even his shadow can heal you. Just try and catch a little bit of as he goes past. Apparently, reading up on Greek culture, that was it, they had some weird ideas about people's shadows. So, maybe Luke's picking up on some of that superstition. But... um. Certainly the sense is that people felt that Peter was a very powerful guy. Well, you've picked out the two themes that I think are there. One of the themes is the atmosphere around these first Christians. As they're doing their thing, what was the impact or the atmosphere in Jerusalem like? And I think Ian's right. There's a certain element of fear. These, these are awesome, unique occurrences in human history. Um, but the other thing is, is the idea here of miracles. So I started trying to do a talk on the whole chapter 5, and then I thought, I can't miss out the bit about miracles. We've got to deal with that at some point in Acts, because there is an element here of supernatural stuff going on. But then I thought, we can't leave the fact that actually some people thought they weren't good enough to join this church, so, so maybe we need to do all three. So we're just going to slow down and do all three. So here, here's my two, two questions. I don't, does the next slide show the questions? Um, I haven't got the clicker, Andy, so you'll have to move it on for us. Okay, it doesn't show both of them. But the first one we're going to leave today is, what can we learn from the atmosphere? And then next time... Not next week, but next time we get into Acts, we're going to do something different next week. We're going to think about what is the point of the miracles and how are we to think about them? What can we learn from the atmosphere then? It is clear that the apostles had extraordinary power here. Let's just stop a minute. What is an apostle? I can hear you ask. The title of apostle is given to the disciples of Jesus who were eyewitnesses of his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And the word apostle literally means someone who's sent, like a messenger. That, that's really what the word apostle means, a sent one, like a herald. So these men were very specially set apart by Jesus. They were handpicked. Jesus taught them, he, he lived with them, and then he sent them. I, I've often said to you, it's very interesting that at the start of John's Gospel, Jesus, um, 
some of the disciples, first disciples, they come to Jesus. They were actually disciples of John the Baptist. They met Jesus and they were following him down the road. And Jesus turned around and said, what do you want? And they said, where are you staying? And Jesus says to them, come and see. That little word, come, invites them to follow him. By the time you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, and they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven. And the word then isn't come and see, but go and tell. And that's really the paradigm for these guys. Jesus says, come and see. And then when they've seen, then he says to them, go and tell. So these men, apostles, they're sent. Their primary job was to talk and to tell people what they knew and what they'd seen. But these are apostles on steroids, aren't they? Because look at what they're doing. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Towards the end, crowds gathered, not just from Jerusalem, but for the first time, this is beginning to impact the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them were healed, not just one or two of them, but everyone who came. These apostles had extraordinary power to do the kind of things that Jesus had been doing. But it wasn't just the miracles. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Jai was dealing with this little strange account of Ananias and Sapphira. Married couple in the church who basically dropped down dead when their pretense was exposed. They wanted people to think that they were something that they weren't quite living up to. And when Peter, through the Holy Spirit, points that out to them, both of them, one after the other, dropped down dead. Who would want to join a church like that? If you're a hypocrite, you're in danger of popping your clogs. So not only have we got extraordinary miracles being done, but there's a sense in which there's kind of a, a judgment on things that are not quite what they should be. And it says that last section that Jai dealt with, verse 11, it's no surprise for Luke to write, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So we've got the vulnerable needy in the society. People who are broken being put back together. People who are in need being helped supernaturally. And at the same time, we've got hypocrites who are pretending to be something they're not being very swiftly judged. Same God, same people, same church, same place. And yet this paradox of judgment coming and yet extraordinary kindness to people in need, I, I want to suggest that this is the kind of world that we all want, isn't it? Bad stuff being dealt with. The needy being put back together when they're broken. We, we, want, to, we want to know, don't we, justice. We want bad stuff to be dealt with and not brushed under the carpet. And we want the vulnerable and needy to be helped. This is the kind of world that we all want. But when it happens, 
great fear seizes everyone. It's clear too that they're united in their work. It says in verse uh, 12, the apostles are doing all this and all the believers together in the temple precincts, right in the heart of this great city of Jerusalem. But then we read verse 13. This is what Ian was picking up on. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. It's not so clear in the original language that Luke writes in what that phrase means. But I think what is clear in in this little section, the tension here in the atmosphere, and this is what I want to pick up on, is that there is both fear and desire. And I think there's a slide that might have, there we go, like magic, desire and fear. The contradiction here is verse 13 says, no one else dared join them, even though they were so highly regarded. But then Luke's almost tripping over himself to say, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the number. So were they daring to join or not? What it seems, Luke's almost tripping over himself to try and get the tension of the fact that both those things are happening at the same time. There's distance and closeness. There's a pushing away and yet a wanting to come near. And Luke underlines it, doesn't he? He says, these people, the, the people around them were holding the Christian believers in high regard. They were respected. Many people in the society around them admired them. But they didn't necessarily want to commit to joining them. Very interesting. Some people maybe thought, I don't want to join these guys. If hypocrites drop down dead like flies, I'm going to keep my distance. I like them, but I would never join them. Far too dangerous. And yet Luke tells us that many others, and note that he says, he's very emphatic, both men and women. This wasn't, this wasn't like a, a gender-specific growth. This was a movement that appealed to men and women who came to faith in Jesus in large numbers. So my question was, what can we learn from this atmosphere? I want to suggest that as people saw the reality of the lives of these Christians, they found the message of the Christian gospel utterly compelling. They seemed to know deep down in their hearts that there's a ring of truth about it. The aroma of authenticity. It smells truthful. It resonates with them. As they observe what's going on, something in their heart says, Amen. That's what life should be like. And as a result, they would never trivialize it or mock Jesus or disrespect people who follow him. It's like in their hearts they secretly sense something of the truthfulness and the power of the Christian gospel. But it's not for me. I don't really want to join in. It isn't that they disagree with it. They're not being atheistic in that sense. They admire it. They respect it. But there's just a line there. I'm going to just keep my distance. Inside, they're thinking, I know this is true, but I don't know what to do with it. 
There's people here who have seen powerful miracles and have witnessed the corporate power of a community connected to God through Jesus, but they just can't quite bring themselves to be part of it. So there's this yearning desire and yet a strange sense of recoil. If anyone sums up this paradox and contradiction between enthusiasm and fear or desire and fear coming near and then drawing back I'd like to be involved no I wouldn't it's Peter and he's mentioned here do you remember hearing his name Peter he was the guy that had the shadow Peter's shadow actually it's Luke the same author who writes Acts who tells us about an encounter that Peter has with Jesus where the same dynamic is going on. And that's why I asked Sam controversially to read from the book of Luke rather than the book of Acts. Do you remember that account that you read? Peter was a fisherman coming off a night shift. They've worked all night. Jesus is teaching people on the beach of the Lake Galilee. It's a big lake, more of a sea really. And the people are crowding into him on the beach, almost pushing him back into the sea. And um, so Jesus sees the boats come in. He says to them, bring some of the boats over here. Can I climb into one of them? It's a good, good move. You don't want to fall back into the sea. So Jesus gets into one of the boats. You can picture the scene. People are all stood on the beach. He climbs into a boat and he teaches the people from the boat on the shore of the lake. When they finished the teaching, or presumably Jesus dismisses the crowds and says, that's your lot for today, we've finished now. And the people go, and then he turns to the fishermen, who presumably are all laid about in the boat, having a little rest after working a night shift. And he says to them, guys, let's go back out. Put your nets down into deep water. Peter, the enthusiastic one, all through the gospel, Peter's the one who speaks without engaging his brain. Peter says, oh Lord, we fished all night, we haven't even had a bite. But if you say so, we'll go. So they pull their nets in and they go into the deep waters of Galilee. They subsequently catch so many fish that their nets, their precious nets, this is their livelihood, are beginning to rip and tear. Peter and his friends have to shout to their friends and say, bring your boat, get to, send the signal, bring the boats, bring the boats, these nets are going to burst. When they lift the fish into the boats and the other boats and the other boats, all the boats are in danger of sinking. I don't know, maybe they're thinking, oh, it's a shame we have to throw some of them back in, but we better reach land alive rather than no point having a massive catch and snuffing it by sinking. The, the boats are almost sinking. Peter loved Jesus. He was always the one who wanted to be at Jesus' side. This is a tough fisherman. He, know, he knows what it means to do a day's labor. When he saw that happen on the Lake of Galilee, what did he do? He fell on his knees and he said, Jesus, just get lost. You've got to leave me alone because I'm a sinful man. Just leave me alone. 
I, I can't stand to be near you because you shame me and embarrass me. He has enthusiasm. He comes near and then he wants to draw back. I can't cope with it. You, you don't know, Jesus, what I've done. You don't know the kind of man I am. And seeing the things that you do, I don't want to be in your presence anymore. Get in a different boat. Go with them, but don't come with me. What was it? Was he so overwhelmed with Jesus' power? Was he overwhelmed by Jesus' amazing, miraculous generosity? I, I think the emotion that welled up inside Peter was guilt, wasn't it? He felt shame. You don't know the life I've lived. I don't deserve it. It is too much for me. I can't cope. It's almost like Jesus is trying to pour something of his love into Peter and his heart, like the gnats, can't cope and they start to break. Peter wants to come near. He's enthusiastic in his desire to know and be with Jesus. As soon as he comes near, he just feels too guilty and instinctively tries to pull away. And what did Jesus say to him? You're absolutely right, Peter. I'm going to go and find a good guy. You can wallow. No. What were Jesus' first words to Peter? Peter, don't be frightened. From now on, Mate, you're not going to catch fish. You're going to catch people. <laughs> Peter must nearly fall overboard, wasn't he? You're a fisherman. You're not going to catch fish from now on, mate. You're going to catch people. I think the book of Acts is a fulfillment of that very statement that Jesus makes to Peter. What is he doing in Acts chapter 5 here? Dropping his nets in Jerusalem. He's catching people. He would never have believed it. Well, I want to suggest to you that what Luke is observing, both here with Peter and in Acts, is what I want to call this afternoon the recoil reflex. I totally made that up. I've no idea if it makes sense. It sounds good in my head. I hope you like it. It's called the recoil reflex. Okay? Peter had it. I think the community around this church had it also. Let me try and show this visually. Um, here is a random person on the next slide. A, a, just a slim random person. Um, uh, with the lights on, I don't think you can see that is, can you? But I think it's dawning on you slowly. Um, and God, Here, here's a random person and God. I'm just trying to picture it visually, just to kind of implant it in our minds. The nearer we come to God, the more we tend to be aware of our own shame. And it's not because God is harsh. It's because he's so utterly good and perfect, wholesome. 
And the truth is, when we come near to him, it just makes us realize that we just fall so miserably far short of what he's like. And instinctively, we want to go, oh, as Peter did. The truth is that God is the ultimate fountain of everything that we know that is good. There's nothing wrong with him. There's no darkness in him. There's no flaw in him. He is the very embodiment of wisdom, goodness, and just rightness. And I want to suggest to you that every deep and secret yearning of our hearts to know ultimate goodness in the end can only finally fully find its rest in him. Every other thing that we try to find fulfillment in outside of him will not satisfy us because we weren't made for something else. We were made for him. The problem is, though, that even though he is both the source and the fulfillment of everything that deep down we really want and desire, the problem is that the closer we come to him, his light exposes our darkness. The nearer we come to him, the more we feel ashamed. The more we see of him and know of him, the more we want to run away from him. And So I want to suggest to you that the recall reflex is one of guilt. I'd love to come near, but I can't. I know it's true, but deep down, I can't be part of it. Some of us, I think, sadly, have recoiled so much that we've forgotten the latent desire, and this is like a distant memory in our DNA somewhere that we seem to be conscious that we've been made for something glorious. And all of our pursuits in life are really an attempt to discover the sense of fulfillment that constantly eludes us. We go through phases of striving and achieving, but nothing seems to fully ring our bells. Does this paradox ring true with you? Uh, well, I don't think anybody would be here. You, you wouldn't be here, would you, if you didn't have some time for Christianity, but... Are you caught between, I want to be near, but I don't know if I can. You want to be forgiven, but perhaps you can't even forgive yourself. Let me try and show you something important. If this idea resonates with you, it won't be long before you begin to see some options. There's a number of options. The first is that you could try to pretend that God isn't as good as he really is. And there's a slide that might just show us this. There you go. You can suppress the thought of God being holy and good. That's kind of like bringing God down to our level. It makes us feel better. That would deal with shame, wouldn't it? If we can bring God down to our level, that doesn't make us so uncomfortable. The problem is that you, we don't really want to do that, do we? First of all, that's like making something really nice, really grubby. 
But the real reason that that's not a good idea is if it is the epitome of goodness, it won't help us, will it, to deny him and suppress him because he ultimately is what we really need. The moment we bring him down to our level, we actually cut off our life source. I, I think it's sad. This is just an aside. Sadly, there are even churches who do this to appear more cool, more relevant, more accessible. They try to bring God down to our level. But you can't sanitize God. You can't make God into a pale shadow of what he really is. When we do that, we're we're doing it possibly because we just can't handle him. But the truth is we were never designed to manage God or control him or handle him. We're meant to worship him and let him handle us, aren't we? There's another option, though. That's one. I've got about six or seven of these, but I'll just give you three. That's option one, bring God down to our level. Option two is we pretend that we're better than we are. So there's a nice symmetry to that. We can either pretend that God isn't as great as he is, or we just pretend that we're a bit better than we are. This is the religious option. Lots of people like this one. You might like it. You might be in church because you like this option. I'm quite a good person. God wants me on his team, probably. I've been well brung up. I mean, brought up. And um, I, I think God's quite pleased with me. I'm quite a righteous, moral person. I'm not like those people over there. And I think God would be quite pleased with me at the end of the day for my sincerity and my good deeds. Do you know the problem with that is that people who are self-righteous always compare themselves to the wrong thing. They always compare, them to, they compare themselves to someone worse than them. Makes them feel better. But if we're comparing ourselves to others, we haven't really even begun to come near to God to start with, have we? In fact, I think sometimes the reason we want religion instead of God himself is because it makes us feel better, which is, in the end, both stupid and awful. It's like, God, I don't want you. I'd rather have religion. Because religion makes me feel better, makes me feel smug and nice and comfortable. We haven't even begun to get near to God at that point. Both of these options involve pretending that something isn't true. I suppose there's a third option, which might be, I agree with you, but I'm just going to ignore it. And maybe you might think, well, I'm just going to do whatever I need to do to drown out the deep yearning of my heart, and I'm just going to hope for the best. I think a lot of people do that. I, I think this truth resonates with people It resonates because God made us. We're stamped with his image. And when we we hear this, it kind of echoes. It doesn't matter what you pick. The first two options really are denial therapy. This option is distraction therapy. I'm just going to fill my life with something else in the hope that that will be louder than the little nagging 
voice that's telling me that one day I'm going to have to face this. And that's the issue, isn't it? The hard thing is that one day, even if we put it off, we will come near to God. And there will come a day when his light will expose our darkness. And I think we all know that deep down too. There is another way. There is a way that doesn't deny or diminish God's goodness and neither does it deny or diminish our guilt or pretend that we're better than we really are and neither does it simply ignore this issue and file it in the pending, I'll do that in 2025 or something. Listen, Peter came near to Jesus and he felt ashamed of himself and what did Jesus say to him? Don't be frightened. I want to suggest to you that that is a word of forgiveness. That is a word of friendship. That is a word of encouragement. That is a word of peace. That is a word of safety. That is a word of healing. Jesus, the great Son of God, holy, right, and truth. Do you know the best thing about him? He loves guilty people. He loves to forgive. He loves to fix what's broken. And he does it by taking our place. He came to die the death that we deserve. And he's taken away our guilt. He hasn't denied our guilt. He's taken our guilt away from us by becoming guilty even though he wasn't. And if you'll have him, you will have a saviour who won by losing. You have a saviour who brings life by dying. You have a saviour who shows the unbelievable strength of his power by not fighting, but laying down his life. He, He is awesome in his awesomeness. But his awesomeness shines most brightly in the fact that he loves guilty sinners enough to die for them. Who else would do that? And so there's no need to pretend. God can maintain his goodness and not deny human guilt and yet somehow bridge the gap. The whole point of the Christian gospel is that Jesus came to deal with our recoil reflex. I think there's another slide that has a cross on it. The cross is the centre of Christianity, not the cradle. You need the cradle for the cross to happen, obviously. But the cross is the centre of Christianity because it's only the cross that upholds the goodness of God doesn't deny the fallenness that we share as humans and yet manages to bridge that divide and do you know the reason that we often want to drive God away is because deep down we believe that he would drive us away if we came to him we assume he doesn't love us because if he really knew us how could he One thing I can tell you 
There's a lot of things I don't know. But one thing I can tell you this afternoon with absolute confidence is that there has never been a single broken person who has come to Jesus and been refused or sent away. If you stay away, you're really saying either I don't believe it or I won't believe it. It is amazing, just in closing, that this passage kind of fulfills what Jesus said to Peter. He was full of shame, recoil reflex, and Jesus said, don't be frightened. You're going to catch people, mate, not fish. And here he is, in Jerusalem, doing exactly that. I bet he would never have believed it. What will you do now? Do you have a recoil reflex? Please, please, this Christmas, will you, in your heart, reach out to Jesus and don't push him away? Hear him saying to you, don't be frightened. See, even this afternoon, that he gave his life to save yours and allow him to forgive your guilt, cover your shame and crown you with his love and kindness. Cry out to him. Eat, eat right now. Cry out to him. Amen.